0: where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Faceoff wherever you get your podcasts. This is J.L. Collins. This is Doc G., and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Earn and Invest Podcast. And as you've probably already gathered in these first few words, I am not Doc G., I'm J.L. Collins from J.L. Collins NH, and I have hijacked the Earn and Invest podcast. I'm going to turn the tables on Doc G, and we're going to grill him about this coronavirus. Uh, I have questions that I want answered, and I'm certainly not an expert in anything medical. I've done several podcasts out there that maybe some of you have listened to about the bear market implications of what's going on, but now we're going to look at the actual disease And I'm going to get some of my questions answered, and I would bet that they're some of the same questions you have. So, Doc G, are you ready to go under the microscope like you've put me under the microscope before?
1: I definitely am. J.L. Collins has my arm behind my back here, and he's pushing me down into submission to answer some questions. So I think it's a good idea. I would remind everyone that I am an internal medicine physician. I am not an infectious disease specialist. However, I've been watching keenly to everything that's been happening and my medical degree gives me some insight as well as all of the knowledge and information we've all been trying to learn and listen to. So hopefully I can add some clarity.
0: Well, and I am only holding him down tightly enough so he can't escape, but loosely enough can, he can breathe and answer the questions. And I particularly wanted to talk to Doc G today because... In addition to his medical background, he's somebody that I trust. And I think he's somebody that you trust. And he's somebody who doesn't have an agenda. And when I listen to the media, when I listen to the government, in the back of my mind, I'm always wondering, well, how much of what I'm hearing is accurate and how much of what I'm hearing is agenda. So we, in this conversation, have no agenda other than to try to understand the facts around this disease that's going around as clearly as we can. And with somebody who's got a medical background and has the expertise to zero in on it. So with that, let's get started. Doc, first of all, what should we actually be calling this things? Is it the coronavirus? Is it COVID-19? What's the appropriate name that we should use going forward in this interview and maybe generally?
1: I like the COVID 19 terminology. I think that makes it simple and straightforward. It delineates 2019 when this first started taking place in China. I think people get a little confused with coronavirus. There are many, many different types of coronavirus. Some are not nearly as deadly. Some are deadly, like the SARS virus was also a coronavirus. So, COVID 19 helps us understand that yes, it is a type of coronavirus, but it's a very specific one, and the one we're talking about
0: currently. You've just changed my behavior. I was calling it coronavirus, and I'm going to go forward with COVID-19. Looking at COVID-19, I looked up some statistics, and I'm looking at the moment at the John Hopkins University of Medicine website and their Coronavirus Research Center, and I'm going to read a couple of statistics from it. These are, I think, as current as they can possibly be. So, total number of confirmed cases worldwide stands at 297,090. There have been 12,755 deaths so far, and there have been 91,540 recoveries. Now, I'm going to jump over to another website, this one, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and I'm going to read a couple of other statistics, and this one's going to be on the flu. And unlike COVID-19 data that I just read, which is worldwide, this is only for the U.S. And this is from, uh, from October 1st, 2019, actually, through March 14th, 2020. Here are the stats that they give, and they give a range because not all the numbers are in. This is for the flu. They are projecting, for that period of time, just in the U.S., 30 million to 54 million flu illnesses. Of those, 390,000 to 710,000 hospitalizations from it, and a death rate of 23,000 to 59,000 deaths. And that's just in the U.S. So, Doc, why are we freaking out about COVID-19?
1: I think there are a few main reasons. i break it into three specifically. One is exponential growth. Two is lethality, and at least for me, another one is seasonality. So let's talk about the first, exponential growth. Let's say you're looking at a huge pond, and on the pond, there is a single leaf sitting right in the middle. So that leaf takes up a very, very small bit of surface area of the pond. Now, I'm gonna give you some rules here. I'm gonna tell you that that leaf is going to reproduce every day. So if on day one, you have one leaf, On day two, then you're going to have two leaves. Then on day three, you're going to have four leaves. And on day four, you're going to have eight. So every day, each leaf can pretty much reproduce itself. I'm also going to tell you that by fact, I know after 48 days, the whole pond is going to be covered with leaves. All right. So if I tell you after 48 days, the whole pond is going to be covered with leaves, how many days is it going to take for the pond to be half covered with leaves? (laughs)
0: <laughs> Probably uh, forty-seven days.
1: Exactly. See, when I first looked at that, my first thought was twenty-four. What that people was don't a quick realize,
0: <laughs> exactly,
1: what people don't realize is that on day forty-seven, it's going to be half covered, and on day forty-six, it's only going to be a fourth covered. If you go back to day forty, to the visual eye, almost none of the pond will be covered by leaves. So, what does this mean? It grows incredibly fast and it really builds up speed early on and you don't notice how much it builds up speed until it explodes on you. And that seems to be the problem with coronavirus that we haven't had with influenza at least in recent years. Influenza doesn't seem to have this exponential growth. So you don't have that immediate explosion. The other thing to think about with influenza is we have a vaccine. So It seems like coronavirus can spread from person to person very quickly. Influenza can also spread, but a good percentage of the United States is vaccinated. Even if you vaccinate 25 or 50%, that can stop it from spreading so fast. So the first is the exponential growth. The second is lethality. For whatever reasons, we believe this coronavirus makes people much more sick and the mortality rate is higher. There's a lot of disagreement right now on how high the mortality rate is, and that's because there are probably a lot of asymptomatic people who've never been tested. So we don't exactly know, but there are guesstimates that the lethality rate is somewhere between 1% and 2%, whereas for influenza, it's 0.1% or lower. So even if those are exaggerations... The fact of the matter is, it seems like, at least at this point, more people who get it die. And then last but not least, you have to consider things like seasonality. What happens to the flu virus in the summer? It pretty much goes away. But if you look at the coronavirus, the suspicion is that it's not going to have the same seasonality, which means it can just keep going. So for all those reasons, it's fairly concerning. And if you just want to look at it from a bigger picture look, If you look at Italy, if you look at China, when in the recent past have you ever seen healthcare systems and ICUs overwhelmed by influenza? When have you seen countries talking about having to triage the elderly and not treat them because they don't have enough resources? We haven't had these conversations because we've never really had an epidemic that spread that quickly that we were spread so thin. So even if you just kind of take a big picture look, you can tell that the resources of these countries that are by far ahead of us in their trajectory, right? So they look at the United States and they say that we're probably two weeks behind Italy if you look at the number of cases and the number of deaths. So Italy went from having small number of cases, small number of deaths, to being overwhelmed in a matter of weeks. And so we can already tell that we've never faced anything like this. And then look even further. Italy is on lockdown, is on quarantine. China was on lockdown. And even with full lockdown and social distancing, they're still facing these issues.
0: That brings me to three questions, actually, because you've covered a lot of ground. Let me start with the seasonality, because that's the easy one, and that was a question I I was going to ask you a bit later. So the hope that's been held out that as spring and summer come and things warm up, typically colds and flus dissipate at that point, the hope for that with COVID-19 is not real.
1: There is some suggestion that heat and humidity may decrease the spread, but we're still seeing it in places like Florida. So we're not sure. We do know that influenza is highly seasonal. In fact, if you go to the flu pandemic of 1918, the big one, right, there was a pause between years. It ended up being, I believe, a two-year phenomena. And there was a pause during the summertime But at this point, we believe that coronavirus will not exhibit the same seasonality. I would tell you, though, viruses can and do burn out. So is it possible that at some point this virus will burn out unexpectedly at some point? It is in the realm of possibility. We just don't know enough yet.
0: That actually brings me to the second of the three questions I had based on your earlier comments just now. China it seems to be on the downswing of this. They seem to be pulling out of it. Things seem to be going back to normal. That has taken about three months. Isn't that encouraging? Is is that a realistic expectation for the U.S., Italy, and the rest of the world?
1: So it's both encouraging and scary at the same time. Let's look at China. So China has been locked down over two months. And you have to remember. When China locks down, it's not like Italy or the US. When China locks down, people actually are required to stay in their house and not allowed to go out on the street. My wife works with several people in China, and they get food delivered to their complex, put in a box, and then they orderly go out by themselves, grab the box, and bring it into the house. So, China, for all intents and purposes, is a dictatorship. What their leadership decides happens and happens immediately. Italy is a perfect example. Italy basically also locked down, but it did it much slower. And if you look at Italy's trajectory, it's much worse than China's. So by being slightly slower, Italy already has more deaths. I believe yesterday they had 600 deaths and 4,000 new cases after two weeks of being locked down. So if you put that all in context, yes, it means social distancing and locking down the way we're doing can work. But it means if you get it wrong or if you're too slow, like Italy, you're going to pay the consequences. Also realize my wife is still working with people from China. They are still locked down. She still has workmates who can still not leave their house. So yes, it's great that China is finally having some success after having their healthcare system basically overwhelmed. But A, they're still locked down. B, if the countries surrounding them don't do a good enough job, once they stop being locked down and someone crosses the borders, it could all start all over again.
0: Okay, so this is this is sounding pretty grim. Yes. So is this the new Black Death? Are we facing the new bubonic plague?
1: I did see a graphic on it and I don't remember the numbers, but bubonic plague killed probably close to the flu pandemic, right? So between 25 and 50 million, or even more than that. And you're talking about in the 1500s, right? So what percentage of the population was that?
0: Black death was in the 1300s. And the statistic I remember seeing was it killed 60% of the population. Whatever the population was at the time, probably obviously a lot fewer people overall, but still a huge percentage of the population.
1: There are a few reasons why I don't think we're facing that. I believe this virus is- Here's some positive things. Yes, I believe this virus is strong. And back in that time period, it might've done the same thing. But there are a few good things about this virus. One is that this is the 21st century. Our medical science is quite advanced. So I do expect that vaccines will be made within the next six months to a year. I do expect that some of our antivirals will have more of an effect than we thought. And better yet, our ICU care is excellent. So if you can get these people the appropriate care, most of them survive. And furthermore, young people tend not to be nearly as affected, for instance, as they were by the flu pandemic, or what I imagine bubonic plague, where young people and old people died the same. Basically, this virus really seems to affect people 60 and over to a much greater extent and people who are immunocompromised and chronically ill. So the number of young people that are dying from this is much lower. So I think there's some reasons to be optimistic, but I do think that this is more severe than anything we've faced in our lifetimes, for sure.
0: Well, I think just the fact that in the 1300s, they didn't have an understanding of the germ theory of disease or even basic hygiene helps a lot. I was having a conversation along these lines with a friend of mine and the pushback was, well, they also didn't have airplanes that allowed you to spread it so quickly. But it did spread because we had trade routes and it might have taken a few weeks instead of a few days to spread. But if I had to choose, if I was able to choose, I'd rather have the airplanes and the quick spread spread along with the modern understanding of disease transmission and germs and basic hygiene, than to have the slow transmission through caravans and not understanding those things.
1: There are two points that really do concern me a little bit, and I'm just not sure what we're going to do about them. One is reintroduction. So even if we do lock down, And we mostly kick this virus's butt. The minute you stop being locked down, it can be reintroduced. So if you don't have a vaccine or a good treatment, we may end up having a year or two of temporary lockdowns and shutdowns when the number of cases go up. That's one issue. The other issue is, especially in the United States, we're not really good at following directions. So I live in Chicago and Illinois has been Deemed shelter in place as of this morning, and part of those rules is you can go out and take a walk as long as you follow the social distancing rules of keeping six feet between you and people you 're walking by, et etc. So my wife and I were taking a walk, and people were not following these directions at all. We were seeing people walking in big groups, we were seeing stores that were open that weren 't just grocery stores but bookstores and places where if we were really following the directions that social distancing is suggesting we shouldn't be doing these things. And so in the United States, we are not like China. China declares that they're going to do social distancing and people do it because it's a dictatorship. In the United States, we're much more free even getting all of our states to practice some of these social distancing exercises and to possibly shelter in place, which probably is what we should be doing for the whole United States. It's going to be hard to get some of the states and some of the municipalities to follow along.
0: Given that, and given our conversation so far, how do you see this unfolding over the next few months?
1: My personal belief, which is conjecture completely, only based on what I've seen and what I heard, is that probably we're going to be on pretty major shutdown for the next two to three months. If we're lucky, I think things will let up. The real question is, if the scientists are right, the United States trajectory should be worse than Italy's, or at least on par with Italy's, which means in the next week or two, we should see the death rate as well as the infection rate go up quite a bit. My hope is that after three months, if we get serious about sheltering in place and social distancing, that it will cool out enough to relax some of these standards, but I could foresee for the next year or two having weeks or weekends where we shelter in place again as the number of cases goes up. All of that assumes, A, that we don't get a vaccine that is really effective, B, that we don't find viral medications that are really effective, and C, that the virus doesn't randomly burn itself out. You know what? That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial.
0: So, the government has gone from doing nothing a couple months ago to, it appears to me, throwing everything they can think of at the wall and hoping something sticks. And if I'm cynical, hoping that they put enough against the wall to cover themselves. Do you think the government's doing the right things?
1: I think the city and state governments have been doing the right things. So, I think what we've seen is the federal government hasn't given enough recommendations to the city and state governments, but for instance in Illinois, they shut down the schools fairly quickly and the shelter in place order came from our the governor of Illinois. So, you're seeing that the state and local legislatures are taking this incredibly seriously and are taking very brave action. The federal government to me, seems like they've been confused and not sure what to make of it. And I would note that one thing that you find with these public health crises that seems to be common is that the governments tend not to tell the full story. So that was a big part, I believe, of the flu epidemic of 1918, too, was there was a lot of lying going on about what was actually happening, and a lot of trying to protect people from the truth of what was going on. So I think that's a common way that governments deal with these type of things, unfortunately. So I'm not surprised that we're having trouble here. I think closing the borders the way the Trump administration has is the right move. I think that we have to completely seal the borders at this point. Going in and out of the country is probably not wise right now. If we really want to get this under control, if we make the whole country shelter in place, which I think we're on our way to at some point, you can't let people in who are going to possibly bring the virus with them.
0: If you were in charge, what would you be having our officials do?
1: We have a few main pathways we need to take. We need to increase the production of protective materials, right? So that our healthcare workers, our doctors, nurses, social workers, all of those can do their work protected so they can be safe in the workplace. We have to protect the spread first in our healthcare facilities, and then if we can make extra throughout our populace. So I would definitely start working on that. I think we are at a complete shelter-in-place environment. I think we should do exactly to what extent that China has done. I think it's going to be our best shot. Above and beyond that, we have to keep our scientists working on cures, vaccines, antiviral medications. I would add mass testing, too. Actually, my local hospital has developed its own COVID test and is using it now. So clearly, the ability to produce these tests needs to be increased, and we need to be doing a huge amount of testing.
0: So let's take this conversation down to what our listeners can do personally. How does someone tell whether they have COVID-19 or the flu or even a cold?
1: It can be very difficult to tell the difference. And there are all sorts of charts out out there on the internet that say, okay, sore throat is more common for influenza, but not COVID. A dry cough is more common for COVID, but not influenza. The truth of the matter is fevers, aches, cough, any of those could mean that you have either. Influenza as well as COVID, they're both very highly infectious. If you have those, you should stay away from other people. If you are not short of breath, If you're feeling a little tired, but otherwise doing fine, you should stay at home. If you start getting short of breath or start feeling really bad, you should present yourself to your local hospital. Above and beyond that, any respiratory-looking illness could be COVID, and it's very hard to just tell from the symptoms.
0: Okay, so if you're not showing symptoms... Is there any kind of self-test you can do at home to give you an indication of whether you have this or you might be developing it? I've seen some self-tests on the internet and then I've seen them debunk. So yes. is there such a thing?
1: No, there's no self-testing for COVID. Certainly you can monitor your own temperature, right? So if you get a temperature greater than 100.0, something might be going on with you. But I'm not sure that there's any real benefit to doing that. We should be doing social distancing anyway. And in most places like Illinois and California, New York, and I believe the rest of the country will eventually be sheltering in place. All of those things are going to inhibit the spread, which is really the fear with this. We worry about ourselves and our own well-being, but A grand majority of people who get this will recover. The key is that you don't spread it throughout society because then the small percentage of people who get really sick will overwhelm our healthcare system. If you feel good, still practice social distancing, still cut down on the communal interactions. Only if you start feeling sick do you have to do something about it. And if it's the typical flu-like symptoms where you don't feel so bad, you need to rest and take care of yourself. If it gets to the point where you're short of breath, or starting to feel really bad, then you have to present yourself into the healthcare system.
0: So if somebody's had a cold or a flu recently, does that bolster their immune system and help resist COVID at all? Or
1: No, only in the sense if they have already had COVID. So if you've had COVID this year, you probably won't get it again. Above and beyond that, if you got influenza, you can get COVID. In fact, if you're just recovering for influenza, your immune system may still be fighting off influenza. You might be more at risk. If you're chronically ill, you're more at risk. So nothing is going to make you less likely to get COVID besides social distancing and generally taking care of yourself, right? Get decent sleep, cut down on stress, exercise, do all those things that make you otherwise a healthy person. There is some talk that non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, things like ibuprofen may make the course of coronavirus worse. I'm not sure about that. Certainly the science is changing day by day, but besides taking care of yourself and staying away from sick people, that's about all you can do.
0: That's great advice. I'm going to kind of wind this down a little bit, but I want to ask you, what do you think we're going to be saying about COVID a year from now?
1: I think this is going to be one of those events we all remember in our life. And so the question is, if things are going well, hopefully we'll say, boy, that was bad. Let's make sure we're prepared next time. If things go poorly, we're going to look back at ourselves and say, a year ago, maybe we had a chance of making this better and we didn't. Is it possible it'll all burn out and we'll look at the economic devastation that's been caused and say, boy, if we just weren't so crazy, things would be okay? I guess that's possible. I just don't find it as likely.
0: Interesting. Final question, and maybe the most important one. Is it true that those people that are infected with COVID will turn into zombies, and this is really the zombie apocalypse?
1: It might just be, but I don't think so. I haven't seen any zombies myself. I did take a walk around my neighborhood today, and there was not a single person who appeared to be a zombie. I wasn't attacked or beaten or robbed or any of the other felonious things that a zombie may do to you.
0: Well, I don't think they beat you and rob you. I think they mostly eat you.
1: Yeah, I haven't been eaten yet that I know of. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: But so I I think this is not the zombie apocalypse, but it's – Scary enough that we need to take action, and I think we also have to remember this is not a new problem. So coronavirus or COVID-19 is a new problem, but we've been having pandemics since the beginning of time. You mentioned bubonic plague. There was the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918. There's HIV, which is a pandemic, a very different kind of pandemic. We get infectious diseases in this world, and it's happened throughout time. We are much more aware our healthcare system is much better. Our scientific minds are much more advanced. So the hope is, regardless of how bad this feels right now, that we will complain about a few thousand people dying. We will complain about how much of a pain this is to be stuck at home or even some of the economic devastation it causes. But fingers crossed, we won't complain that 60% of the population was wiped out. And I think we have to keep that in mind as bad as this feels right now. We've never lived through something like this, it seems, but our world has definitely lived through it.
0: And that's true. Our world's definitely lived through it. And as you pointed out earlier in the conversation, never have we had more knowledge, more resources, and more ability to deal with it than we have now. And I think that should give everybody listening a a lot of encouragement.
1: I hope it does. And you and I, we also not only worry about our own health and our well-being, but our financial well-being. And the truth of the matter is, what's going to happen to our world happens if the economy drops out, if all these bad things come to fruition. It's probably going to happen to all of us, no matter how carefully we planned So I know you talk about this on a lot of the podcasts you've been on. You had a financial plan before this happened. Stick to it, hold to your guns, and we'll hope it gets better. And when it does get better, if we stick to our guns, most likely we'll be just fine.
0: Yeah, from a financial point of view, absolutely. There's really two scenarios. One is that we're going to come through this and recover and life will go on and the markets will recover along with it. If it turns out to be the new black death and 60% of the population dies, and I think we've given pretty compelling reasons why that is highly unlikely, but if it turns out then where you're invested is is simply not going to matter. So I think I'd wrap up this conversation with the advice to our listeners that the key thing you want to do now is not worry about your investments, take care of your health, wash your hands and make sure you're around to enjoy the market's inevitable rebound.
1: And I would add, as painful and annoying as the things that are happening right now, all this social distancing and this sheltering in place, I personally believe it has value, and I believe it can really make a positive impact on how we survive this virus.
0: On that note, I thank you for letting me turn the tables and interview you and i appreciate the time and the perspective
1: it's been my pleasure and and can you let me get my arm back from behind you know my
0: it's getting kind of sore you've been pulling it back there for a while now i'll let you up now and you can shake it out and walk around
1: thanks i appreciate it